This morning we come back to our study in the book of Titus. I had ambitions of preaching several verses in Titus this morning, but we will finish Titus chapter 2, which means we will deal with Titus chapter 2 verse 15, because I think that it is helpful, that it is pertinent, it's kind of a hinge verse you will see, and, and so we will spend our time this morning unpacking the reality of Titus chapter 2 verse 15. Let me read our text for us, and then we will begin. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I want to begin this morning by considering a few verses out of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you make your way there for just a moment... I can establish a little bit of context. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. As Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Drop down to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. At the moment of salvation, believers are given supernatural gifts by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up or edifying the body of Christ. And some of those gifts, as it says there in verse 11 are gifted individuals. And so there's various gifts listed in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to see lists of gifts. And and some of those gifts ceased with the apostles dying off. But many of those gifts still remain. And we break those gifts up into two categories, teaching gifts and serving gifts. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, after Paul says in verse 7 that that grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, meaning that, that God sovereignly dispensed gifts to his people at the moment of salvation, he then goes on in verses in verse 11 to describe some of those gifts, and particularly in verse 11, they are gifted individuals. That is to say that God has supernaturally gifted specific individuals and given them as gifts to the body of Christ. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And there are several gifted individuals listed in verse 11. I just want you to focus there at the end of verse 11 where it says, and some as pastors and teachers. We would say some as pastor teachers. Consider with me the need for pastor teachers in the church today for just a moment. 
They are necessary because of several reasons. One, they are men chosen to communicate God's word to God's people. They are one of God's means of of sanctification for the people of God as they communicate the truth of God's word. And people sit under that truth. God uses the preaching of individuals to transform his people to become more like Christ. Pastor teachers feed God's sheep through the word of God, the supernatural food that comes through the divine word of God. They protect God's sheep. They work to keep the church pure, to keep outside influences who come to disturb the unity of the flock and to bring false teaching into the midst of the people. They keep to keep those folks away. And they also do that within the church through means of church discipline, dealing with the sin of of believers within the body of Christ. They counsel, encourage, and, and challenge God's people. They have been equipped to handle God's word in a way in which they communicate exactly what God intended to communicate through his human authors. We'll consider more of those things in just a moment. But I also here at the outset want you to consider the weightiness of the task that accompanies these gifted individuals. Turn with me for just a moment to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Verse 1, James says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That is a warning that James gives to those whom God would use to communicate truth to his church, that, that teaching is a very weighty activity, that it is something that matters to God in an infinite way. Teaching is what God uses, as I said at the outset, and is what you know to be true. The teaching of the Word of God is what God uses to change the hearts of the people of God, to to bring them into more of Christ's likeness. And and so if, if a teacher does not take his job seriously, James says, that there will be a stricter judgment. And what he's also saying when he's saying this in verse 1 is that those whom God calls to do this, that it's not some just menial task, it's not something that is to be taken lightly, but, but these men will stand before God and give an account for the things that have come out of their mouth to the people of God. This is used by James to produce the right kind of fear in the hearts and the lives of those whom God has gifted to serve His church through the proclamation of truth. Turn also with me then to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. This is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself 
an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take special note of verses 15 and 16. Paul says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Another warning that comes down to those whom God calls to minister to the people of God through the proclamation of truth. To look out for your own soul and to look out for the teaching that you proclaim. There is going to be a judgment. God is going to evaluate Every believer, but specifically for our purposes this morning, he is going to evaluate every preacher, every teacher of the Word of God. And all of the things that they said, which were true and according to the the Scriptures and and were helpful and beneficial to the people of God, will be used and it will be rewarded. And all of that which was not profitable will be burned up, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The pastor must pay attention to his life and to his teaching. Why? Because the people are looking for a credible person who is proclaiming the truth to them to be able to model their lives after in, in some respect and to be able to listen to what they have to say and believe that it's actually true for them. Pastoral ministry is essential for God's purposes within the life of the church. And in our text, back in Titus chapter 2, Paul wanted to reiterate to Titus that his task as a pastor there on the island of Crete was crucial And that it was backed by the authority of God. Friends, as we examine this verse this morning, it is vital that you embrace the truth that pastoral ministry is indispensable to your sanctification. Why? Because it has been designed that way and designed for that purpose by God. And so as a result, I want you to note in our text this morning two critical components of pastoral ministry that this verse describes which highlight its intended purpose. These critical components will will not surprise you. They're nothing new, especially if you have been in a church like Countryside for any time at all. However, we need to be reminded of these things often because this is how God designed leadership, the leadership of the church to function. These are the priorities for those who lead the church of God. 
The first critical component of pastoral ministry, the thing that that all pastors who have been supernaturally gifted by God must do if they are worth their salt, is number one, the faithful preaching of sound doctrine. Faithful preaching of sound doctrine. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Paul says, these things, these things. Things. Verse 15 functions as a connective back to verse 1 of chapter 2. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And if you remember, Paul begins that chapter by explaining the importance of sound doctrine and saying that it is essential for discipleship in the life of the church. And we spent several weeks unpacking what discipleship looks like on various levels and for our various age groups. And so verse 15 works as a connective. It goes back to verse 1, and it kind of functions as a bookend, so to speak, the conclusion of all that Titus, that Paul has written to Titus in the previous 14 verses of chapter 2. These things refers to all the things of verses 1 through 14 related to passing along sound doctrine to the saints. Sound doctrine is the foundation to maturity in the lives of God's people. A church can have a robust discipleship process, and they can have a commitment to, to training their members, which we, which we looked at in Titus chapter 2. But if their doctrine is shoddy or is incorrect or false, then hear me, true maturity won't be achieved. You can have the best programs in the world at your church, the most efficient, running, well-oiled machine that you can think of. But if doctrine is not sound, if doctrine is shoddy or false or incorrect, those saints in that church will not be brought to maturity. And it's important to understand that sound doctrine begins in the pulpit and then trickles down to all of the other ministries of the church. If the pulpit is weak, It doesn't matter how many ministries you have in the church, the ministries of the church will be weak. The preaching ministry of the pastor is absolutely foundational. And chapter 2 verse 15 is a remarkably clear command to all pastor teachers to prioritize preaching sound doctrine to their people. And as you look at this verse, you can see with me that there are three, what we would call present imperative verbs, that define faithful preaching. And by their their present tense, indicate that the preaching ministry of the word is to be the regular week-to-week pattern of the local church. Notice the first of the three imperatives that fully flesh out this this overarching mandate that pastors have to preach sound doctrine that we see there in the first part of verse 15. Paul says, these things speak. These things speak. Speak 
is also used, connected directly to verse 1. And it means to declare, to, to proclaim, and to teach. To speak here in this verse is to preach God's truth. It is to disclose God's truth to God's people. Why? For the purpose of God's people growing in the knowledge of God and in godly living. Paul tells Timothy in the famous parallel passage to ours, 2 Timothy 4, 2, to preach the word. To do it in season and to do it out of season. To do it when people are on board and listening and to do it when people are not on board and wanting to have their ears tickled and there's issues going on. Paul says the mandate for the pastor is to preach. The preaching ministry of the Word of God is to be the primary ministry in every local church. If a church has great programs for kids, and for youth, and for men and for women, and they have all kinds of, of outreach strategies, feeding the homeless and all of those kinds of things going on, but they are weak when it comes to the pulpit ministry. As I said before, I'll say again, the overall maturity of the people in that church will be inadequate and they will be dysfunctional. One of the first churches that I was a part of that I'm grateful for, and I'm grateful for the time I was there and the way that that God molded me and shaped me. I was extremely young at that point. But to this day, from the time I was there to this day, the preaching ministry in that church has been weak. And this is a church in the area that has great programs and They have great things going on in the summer, and they draw in a lot of kids for various things, and and they do preach the gospel. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this church is is not preaching the gospel. They are. But if you go and spend any time at all with the people of God there, you step away from that church thinking there is a weakness and an inadequacy in these people's understanding of how to live godly lives. And it is because the preaching that comes from the pulpit week to week is just not accomplishing what God has intended it to accomplish. Biblical maturity, as we have talked about in the book of Titus a number of times, is this ongoing, arduous, long process of growth. It's not something that you flip a switch and it happens overnight. Right, I know I've talked with some of you, and, and, and we've talked about different things. I know that some of the struggles at times is, man, I came to Christ, and I'm excited. I'm excited about coming to Christ, but, but I really thought that, man, this part of my life would change immediately. And you get discouraged by those things, but don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by that. God is in the process of, of changing his people. And making them more like Christ through the word of God. But he does it at his own pace. And, and so growth in the life of believers is, is ongoing and it's, it's long. This is why we talk about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because 
Because people who stick it out, even though they're going to have ups and downs, as all of us do in our Christian lives, people who stick it out to the end prove themselves to be those whom God began a good work in that he is working to complete. Don't be discouraged. As sometimes life seems difficult, as, as your sin maybe becomes a greater reality to you than it was, and you're dealing with the issues of life, Know that God is growing you and he's, he's changing you, but he's doing that through his word. And the primary way that he does that in the life of the church is through the preaching ministry of the word of God. So, also, so let me also say this, that if you're struggling in your spiritual growth, but you're not committed to weekly sitting under the authority of the word of God, then there's the disconnect. There might be a lot of other things going on in your life that you need to get worked out. But that is a massive disconnect. Because God has made very clear in his word that it is through the preaching ministry of the word of God that his saints are sanctified. And so let me encourage you that if that is an issue for you, that you seek to make a greater commitment to be under the preaching ministry of the word of God on a week by week, basis. The pulpit ministry of the local church is foundational to the growth of that church. Notice again that word speak there in verse 15. And notice the the prepositional phrase that, that modifies the three imperatives there in the middle of verse 15. Paul says, with all authority. With all authority. Paul is not commanding pastors to simply give pep talks to their people. He is not commanding pastors to give advice to their people or to provide some kind of entertainment. He is not commanding pastors to have a discussion with his people. He is commanding Titus and every other pastor to preach God's truth, to herald it, to proclaim it, to declare it, and to do so with all authority that has been given by God. Understand, friends, that this is a massive and and weighty process. This is not the pastor standing up every Sunday and shooting from the hip with his words or flying by the seat of his pants when it comes to teaching the Bible. No, the preaching process begins with the pastor getting into his study for many hours during the week and, and studying the text that he is going to preach. He begins with the, with the exegetical process. It's simply the process used to explain the text. That word exegetical, actually, the word exegete comes, um, we see it in John 1.14 when, when John uses that word to say that Christ is the exegete of the Father, that Christ explains the Father. So when Christ took on flesh and came into this world, he was explaining the Father. He was disclosing the Father. That's the idea of of exegesis, kind of the disclosure process. And so the pastor begins with an exegetical process, which simply means that he is unpacking the grammatical, literary, and the theological context of the passage that he is going to preach. He is using the exegetical skills that he has been trained with in seminary and that are now in his exegetical tool belt, so to speak, to come to a very clear understanding of what the original author intended to communicate in that particular text. That is his job. 
to discover what the original author was intending to communicate. So in our passage, what Paul was intending to communicate to Titus. To figure out what that was. And after he has discovered the meaning of the text, he then crosses what we call the contextual bridge and begins to fashion a coherent theme or what we call a proposition statement. And then there's an outline that then flows from that theme. If you're looking at your pages that are before you, you see that. right? You see there at the top the theme or the proposition that there are two critical components to pastoral ministry. And then the outline flows from that. That's the process. This is the, the skeleton of his sermon, so to speak, that he will preach. He then plows through all of the exegetical data and uses that information to, to put meat on the skeleton that he has prepared. And so you're not just coming into the pulpit with just this bare-bones skeleton to say a few things. You have taken that skeleton and you've taken the meat of the text and you have put that meat on the skeleton. And so if we're sticking with that metaphor, you come and you deliver the whole person, right, in the preaching process. And what we call this is the explanation of the text. But not only does he uh, study to explain the original context, though that is foundational and essential, he must then show how those principles carry over to all believers. We don't want to get up here and preach to you just some sort of data dump, just a bunch of, of information. Though that information is critical and it is foundational, the pastor who does his job will cross that bridge, so to speak. will take the principles that, that have been pulled out of the text and begin to bring them to bear on the hearts and the lives of the people. Notice that his job of, of declaring the text with, with all authority doesn't stop with simply, simply declaring the explanation, with just speaking. You see there in verse 15 it says, And exhort... He must also exhort with the text. That's the second present imperative in our text. To exhort is to to urge strongly. It is to appeal to. It is to encourage. It is to compel people with the content of the truth to respond to that truth, to make godly decisions, to, to change so that their lives come into correspondence with that truth. To exhort is to seek to persuade believers to respond to the truth that is being explained. I was taught to call exhortation getting to the second person. If you have listened to me any time at all, you know that occasionally I will say, friends, listen to this. Friends, I'll say it again in this sermon. Other people use different kinds of terms. But it is in those times that I am seeking to exhort. I'm seeking you to call you to the table to respond to the truth that is before you. To embrace something. To deny something. To believe something. It's getting to the second person. You need to do this. That's what exhortation is. A preacher is to seek to back his listeners into a corner, so to speak, with the argument of the text, kind of like a, a cat who's there, 
and who, who has to make a decision on what they're going to do. They're either going to attack or they're going to try and slip away some other way. But, but regardless, they're forced to make a decision in that corner. Now, that is what a preacher must do with the text. He must back his listeners into a corner with the argument of the text and force them to either obey what is being commanded or to choose to disregard it. But either way, when they come away, they have to deal with what they just heard. They have to deal with what they just heard. Exhortation calls for a response through compelling listeners with the truth that is at hand. One of my favorite Christian dead guys who, who I like to read, who I've mentioned to you many times before, J.C. Ryle. You know, one of the reasons I connect with this guy, I think, is because he never missed an opportunity to take the truth that he was explaining and to appeal with that truth in several different ways to the people who come under the authority of the Scriptures. Friends, I never want you to leave without having your soul beckoned to respond to what has been taught. I don't want you to think, ah, oh, that was good, I'm glad I learned that today. I'm glad I have that new knowledge. Yes, I want you to have that new knowledge because it is with that knowledge that then you can be transformed. But I want you to take that knowledge and say, now what am I going to do with this? I'm going to have to deal with this on this level this week. I might have to deal with this with this person this week. I might have to start believing different things about God because I'm believing false things about God. That's my goal. That's the goal of every pastor who is called to proclaim and to exhort with the scriptures. Going back to Ryle for just a second, I remember having to read one of his sermons in seminary for the purpose, at the time I was like, man, this is busy work. It's taking a long time. But I think back to this often because we had to read this sermon. We had to use all kinds of different colors and stuff. And I'm not, I'm not really a colored guy, markers and stuff. I'm a, some guys mark up their notes a ton. I'm just not that kind of guy. I don't see things that way. And so I'm sitting down with all these markers that I somehow borrow from some people. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm reading through this. And, and we're marking every time he exhorts with the text. It was compelling to me. Because it was on every page. The thing was just lit up with color. Because he was saying, listen people. The God of all truth is speaking to you. You must listen and obey. And he was saying that in every which way you could think of with the particular text that he was preaching. It was compelling. To exhort is also to, to compel unbelievers to repent and believe in the gospel. Believers and unbelievers respond to the truth in different ways. Believers respond to the truth as God is their father and coming under his authority and saying, Lord, I need to, I, my life needs to become more submissive in these ways. An unbeliever says, no, I need to submit to Christ as king and I need to bow myself before him, repent from my sin and believe in him as savior. Different types of exhortation. It is to constrain unbelievers with the glories of Christ, that he is all the all-satisfying answer to their sin problem. It is to show them the glories of, of his divinity and his humanity. It is to proclaim his goodness and his mercy and his love and his grace. Every preacher must prioritize exhorting his people with the truth in his preaching ministry. 
As you look at the text, exhortation here is the positive command, persuading people with the truth to embrace the truth. But notice then the third present imperative in our text, which is negative in its connotation. As it says, you are to reprove them. You are to reprove them. To reprove is, is to expose sin in the hearts of individuals using the truth of the word of God. This is to correct wrong thinking and wrong living with the truth. This is to call to the table the issues of life in the hearts and lives of the listeners. To reprove is to to convince listeners that their sin matters and that it must be dealt with. Uh, to reprove is to take the t- sharp two-edged sword and to, to pierce the souls of men and women with it. This is to, to peel back the onion of the heart, so to speak, with the truth of the Word of God. And this begins with preaching, certainly, but then it trickles down into the one-on-one counseling and discipleship ministry of the church. Friends, if you are going to live lives, if you are going to be changed, then you need the reproving that comes from biblical preaching. And you need to embrace it. When the preaching ministry of the word is taking place and your heart is gripped, by the reality of some sin that you were dealing with in your life, and all of us have this happen. If you were in the first service, you were gripped by your own sin. Why? Because we come to the table of the Lord, and we're reminded of the the glorious, perfect Christ, and how short we fall. But you need to embrace that. We don't like to be told that we are sinning. None of us do. None of us enjoy reproving. It's not in our nature. We want to be encouraged. We want to be exhorted. Excel still more. Keep going. But reproval? Mm. I I don't want you to really unpack that level of sin that's in my heart that I know I need to deal with. I just don't want to go there. But what I'm calling you to, and what Paul is telling Titus, he must do, is he must reprove the text so that the people of God must respond to the sin in their lives. And so when the, the preaching of the ministry is taking, preaching of the word is taking place and you are gripped by your sin, you must deal with it. Embrace the reproving. See it as God's grace and his mercy in your life and respond to it. Many churches have stopped speaking of sin the way that God speaks of sin. They have begun to focus solely on the positive, feel-good verses that Scripture states. Unfortunately, many have done this intentionally as a a method to put more people in their pews and to, to build their congregations and their membership. The problem is that 
with whatever a church does to draw people in, to put them in the seats, they must continue to do to keep them in the seats. And the problem with all of the gimmicks and all the things that are changing with society is that it's ever-changing. And so you're never going to be a solid, stable church if you're always changing according to the every wind of doctrine that comes your way. Shallow methods produce shallow Christians. This is not what God's desire is. He desires mature Christians, discipling other mature Christians. And for that to happen, the preaching ministry of the Word of God must always include reproof. Embrace the truth and the correction that the Holy Spirit produces in your hearts as you sit under the Word of God on a weekly basis and respond to it. So preaching sound doctrine includes declaration of the truth. It includes exhortation with the truth. It includes reproving with the truth. And that exercise, Paul says, must be carried out, notice this, with all authority. You see that there in the middle of verse 15. Look back at chapters 1, verse 7 for just a moment. Remember this, as Paul was giving Titus the qualifications for the overseers, for the elders, pastors, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. As God's steward. Elders, pastors, shepherds are God's stewards. They are God's administrators for the church of God. That is to say that they are are heralds of the truth on behalf of Christ. Now when we speak of elders having authority in the church over God's people, it is important to understand what this does mean and what this doesn't mean. Let's start with what this doesn't mean. I found MacArthur very helpful in his commentary on this text he gave several principles regarding this that I just simply want to piggyback off and give you. This is what having authority does not mean. Pastoral authority does not mean that pastors and elders have any personal authority to be dictators in the church. Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 make it abundantly clear that the church is God's household. The church belongs to God. It's not the pastor's household. The church doesn't belong to any pastor or any elder in the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Secondly, pastoral authority does not mean that they have ecclesiastical or, or traditional authority. This is what People like the Roman Catholics would claim that there are still popes and that there's this authority that comes down from that pope. It it runs into all of the rest of uh, the authority structure within the confines of that church. And that the things that they say and the things that they speak are equivalent to and sometimes supersede that which is found in the scriptures. It's not true. It's not what pastoral authority means. That's not what Paul means when he's talking to Titus here. They do not have ecclesiastical or traditional authority. Third, pastoral authority is not 
the elders' own intellectual authority. Now, the pastor may explain things and say certain things and, and sometimes say things in a certain way that, that may or may not be helpful. But that which, he does not, that which does not come from the truth of the Word of God is not authoritative. It's not his own intellectual authority. Fourth, this is not an experiential authority. Just because the pastor has experienced something in his life doesn't mean that that is an authoritative thing that he might share. Now, it might be used as an example for something. It might be helpful for some. It might not be helpful for others. But it's not, it's not authoritative. It's not authoritative when he meets with people and explains, well, this is the things that I went through in my life. It may be helpful, again. It may bring insight. But it's not authoritative. Fifth, this authority doesn't extend into personal decision-making of believers on a day-to-day basis. You notice that pastors and elders of this church don't come to your house, pop in at dinner time, unless invited, and just come sit down at your table, ask what's happening in your life, and then begin to dictate how you need to change certain things that are going on. We don't do that. That'd be weird on many levels, right? In Texas, probably get shot, but, but, but we don't do that. Why? Because that's not that, that, that's overreaching our authority. The authority we have that comes from the text. And so we preach the truth of the word of God, and then you're responsible in your own lives to make the decisions that bring glory and honor to God. And friends, you will stand in judgment before God for those decisions. What Paul, is, what Paul does mean here, what he does mean by telling Titus to preach with all authority is that pastors, elders, they have been granted a God-given, delegated authority to speak only what God has communicated in His Word. Friends, pastors are the mouthpieces of God in this dispensation. How does this happen? Well, it happens when pastors rightly divide the word of God through careful study and proclaim those insights to the people of God. That proclaimed truth, don't miss this, that proclaimed truth bears the authority, not of the pastor, it bears the authority of God. So when you sit under the text that has been rightly divided and those principles have been brought out and they've been declared to you, friends, that is the very authority of God. Because it's His Word. It's His divine Word. The response is simple. Those sitting under the authority of that truth are commanded to embrace it. Unbelievers are commanded to repent and believe. Believers are commanded to take inventory of their spiritual lives and respond to the authoritative, preached truth accordingly. You guys are privileged people. Because I believe you're in one of the best churches, if not the best church in the world. And I say that not because I'm a pastor of this church. I probably told many of you that if I wasn't a pastor of this church, and I know what I know about this church, I would have moved my family from anywhere in the world to come to this church. Because I believe this is what God has commanded a church to do. And so I 
tell you this, and I believe it fully for myself and for you. We are privileged people now. You are in a place where the word of God is preached in lots of venues across this campus all week long. And I can tell you that it is truth that has been rightly divided. It is guys in their study shutting their blinds, shutting out the world, saying, don't bother me. I'm spending time with God because I have to declare God's truth to God's people. That happens every week. But you may not always be here. God may move you. Some of you are away at college. You come back occasionally, but you have other churches. Let me tell you this. Whenever you make decisions about what you're going to do in life, what job you're going to do, what career you're going to be involved in, where you're going to live, you don't base it on the weather. You don't base it even on a particular job. You base it on a church that is rightly declaring the word of God week by week with pastors diligently feeding their people with the truth. That is the absolute most important decision you can make as a Christian is to be in a church that takes the word of God absolutely seriously as it should be. Don't settle for all the gimmicks, the flesh-appealing tactics that some churches attempt to use and promote as faithful ministry. Preaching sound doctrine with all authority is the first critical component of pastoral ministry. It's not a back-burner issue. It is the issue. But Paul also gives a second critical component and that is number two the faithful shepherding of the saints certainly these are interconnected but they are distinct look at the end of verse 15 Paul says let no one disregard you let no one disregard you Titus this pastoral authority also extends into the pastor's shepherding ministry Faithful shepherding begins in the pulpit and then trickles down into the day-to-day ministry into people's lives. According to 1 Peter 5, which we studied several months ago, faithful shepherds must, must exercise oversight over the flock voluntarily and prove to be examples to the flock. And as they shepherd, Paul says here to Titus, they must not let anyone disregard their communication of the truth. This, is what, this, this was meant to be an encouragement to Titus. He had a lot of folks there in Crete that he was dealing with who were against the truth that he was proclaiming. He was dealing with a lot of adversity. And this is parallel to what Paul commanded to Timothy, which we read earlier in 1 Timothy 1.12, when he said, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself to be an example of those who believe. So how is the pastor... To let no one disregard him. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that pastors must develop a strong backbone against opposition regardless of the cost. They must develop a strong backbone against opposition regardless of the cost. Yes, pastors, elders must be gentle 
and humble and servant-minded. But they also must be men of conviction that don't back down in the face of assault against the truth. Men like Calvin and Spurgeon and Ryle and Sproul and MacArthur, who some were because they passed on, some are humble men who loved God's people diligently. But they always stood firm in their conviction of the truth, regardless of what it cost them. These wimpy dudes who are in many megachurches today spouting off things, claiming that the things they say are from the Lord, but they are then capitulating on many of the moral issues of the day, or they're afraid to mention the word sin in their preaching ministry. These are not men of conviction, and they are not fulfilling their pastoral role biblically. Pastor Paul is calling pastors to be men with a backbone. Second, to let no one disregard you and thus be a faithful shepherd means that men must remain firm in their commitment to the truth. They must remain firm in their commitment to the truth. This is certainly connected to the previous principle, but is focused on what Paul calls Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 4.16, which we read, to pay close attention to his life and to his teaching. The pastor's theological well must continue to plunge deeper and deeper in his understanding and his commitment to the Scriptures. Why? So that his life is shaped by those commitments. And his teaching is governed by those commitments. This causes a man to be truly who he appears to be in every facet of his life. And I think I've mentioned this before. But the greatest thing that I love and admire about our dear Pastor Tom is that he is the most consistent human being that I have ever known. He is the most consistent person that I have ever known. He is who he says he is to the fullest extent. I have never met a person quite like him. And I admire that, and I, and I look up to him, and I'm humbled by the privilege that I get to serve with him. And his commitment to the truth in the midst of opposition, and he's encountered much opposition at times, it just simply flows from his life. It doesn't waver. His life doesn't look like this when it comes to adversity. His life is steady and consistent. Why? Because his well goes deep. He's a man of conviction who's been totally shaped by the truth of God. Third, to let no one disregard you and thus be a faithful shepherd means that men must be resolved to do what is necessary for the purity of the church. God's authority that comes through his word from a faithful minister trumps everything resulting in the reality that disobedience or lack of adhering to the truth must be dealt with in the life of the local church. This is where church discipline comes into play. Rebellious resistance to the truth after much patience and admonition must result in pastors and elders walking through the church discipline process. The pastor is a protector of the flock. This is, this is one of his primary roles as a shepherd. Therefore, he must be committed to not tolerating sin in the congregation. 
Faithful shepherds must lead with both a staff and a rod if they are worth their salt. It is critical that pastors must both preach faithfully and shepherd faithfully if they are going to lead God's church as they ought. Friends, develop an appetite for faithful preaching by consistently seeking His face in His Word. Consistently seek the face of Christ in His Word. Let me give you several principles for working on this as we close. I'll just list them. First of all, seek to engage in preaching. Try hard to avoid distractions. Last week I was with the speakers, one of my jobs here. I enjoy doing that. I'm not a typical sitting up front kind of guy. It's just not my world. But with those guys, when they're here, I sit with them. And I thought I was going to sit on the side, but the way the speaker went, I sat like dead center the whole weekend. And it was really weird and awkward for me at first. But then I look back on the weekend. I was so thankful for that. I didn't have a single distraction all weekend. I sat there and was able to listen to every single message without any distraction, and I had to listen to Mike's three times. I say had to. Enjoyed listening to Mike's three times. It was wonderful. But it was so compelling for me because I don't do that usually. I say that to say that if you have distractions, you've got to get rid of them. Engage in the preaching of the word. Keep an attitude of prayer during sermons, asking the Holy Spirit to to work through the Word to show you Christ. Second, respond to the conviction of the Spirit through the preached Word and faithful shepherding of the leadership and seek to be more like Christ. Respond to the conviction of the Spirit. Third, don't allow yourself to get bored by the Word. It's easy. We can do this. All of us can do this. Don't allow yourself to get bored by the word. Friends, this, this is God's word to us. This. We have it. Don't get bored by it. Fourth, don't settle for the gimmicks of the world. Fifth, be a joy to your leaders because you live in response to the truth. It's a joy to serve. Sometimes there's difficulties in service. But as John said, he said, there's no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. That's true for every pastor, every shepherd. If you're here this morning, you're not in Christ. Then the authoritative command of God to you is what I said earlier. It's to repent and it's to believe. It's to repent from your sins, to turn from your sins, to turn to Christ and believe who He is. Believe that He is God incarnate. He lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death for you and rose again the third day so that you could have a relationship with God. So you could have your sin forgiven. That's the command. It's on the authority of Scripture. If you're not here this morning, you repent and you believe in the gospel. Come to Christ. Find the all-satisfying Savior to be sufficient for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for a few moments this morning to reflect 
upon this ever-critical responsibility of the pastor-shepherd. Something you put into place by your grace, for your glory, and for the good of your people. Father, we ask you would challenge our hearts. We'd be committed to these things. We'd embrace these things. We'd be reminded of these things. As so many of these students are committed to these things. But what a joy that is. Thank you for your goodness to us. May we be committed evermore to knowing and loving Christ in a greater way.